0: Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Jonah Goldberg talks about the risks of nationalism and identity politics. Mustafa Akil talks about liberty and Islam. Congressman Jason Chaffetz explains the risks of stingrays, the latest in domestic eavesdropping. And Robert Bradley talks about a classical liberal energy policy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As the Cato Institute this year marks its 40th year, uh, it's important to to take a moment to focus on one issue that maybe wasn't in the public discussion as much as it is today, in part because of Cato's efforts, and that is monetary policy. And uh, today we're talking with George Selgin, director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute, and uh, Jim Dorn, VP for Monetary Studies and editor of the Cato Journal, both with books Out or soon-to-be-out from the Cato Institute in their uh, respective areas. George Selgin's book is Money, Free and Unfree. And uh, Jim Dorn's book is Monetary Alternatives, Rethinking Government Fiat Money. And both, as of this recording, ought to be available to you uh, right now. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's talk about, you know, going back to – I don't know, where would you like to start? I mean, obviously, Cato started in 1977, but let's talk about where was monetary policy discussion? What Was it as robust as it is now, or was it simply uh, people not really questioning the actions of the Federal Reserve? Well, we've had quite a
1: swing, as George mentioned in the forward to uh, my book, uh, Alternatives to Government Fiat Money. There was a lot of discussion about rules versus discretion, but then, uh, after that, most of the attention was on controlling interest rates and on discretionary fiat money. Cato brought into existence a wider discussion, because not only did we discuss monetary alternatives—that is, alternatives to the government fiat money system—but we discussed discovered a rules-based, or or discussed a rules-based system all the way from the gold standard or free banking with a gold-based currency or even private currencies without gold, uh, as Hayek promoted, for example, uh, to limiting the Federal Reserve, the central bank, by some type of a monetary rule like a price stability rule or nominal GDP. So we really, Brought about a more robust discussion of limiting the power of government, uh, including limiting the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve has gained substantial power, but it has little humility. And we had people like Charlie Plosser and other people talk about the limits of monetary policy, that monetary policy can't do everything. It can't stimulate economic growth over the long run and so on. So, we brought those arguments to bear um, within our own concept of limited government and free markets.
2: When Cato was first founded, of course, there was a lot of discussion about monetary policy, all related to the inflation at the time. And there was also a, a very poor understanding of, of the, the role that the Federal Reserve and central banks played in causing inflation. And I think the early Cato work in that area helped to uh, contribute to a better understanding of uh, of the monetary causes of inflation. but. But after that, after Paul Volcker brought the inflation right down, we had the great moderation period, and people became very complacent about monetary policy. They thought, oh, well, the Fed's finally solved everything, everything's good, Uh, don't need to talk about that anymore. And uh, the same was true, more or less, uh, abroad, where other central banks also seemed to have gotten their (laughs) sea legs. But, uh, of course, the crisis has changed everything, and Cato never stopped talking about the need for fundamental reform. I don't think that, uh, that uh, we ever were <laughs> convinced that the Fed had figured everything out or that other central banks had. And now uh, uh, we are pushing harder than ever to get people to think about the need for fundamental institutional reform that can bring us r- truly lasting stability in our monetary systems. And, and yet, we have arguments
0: with uh, people like uh, Ken Rogoff, uh, Jim, that you and I had talked about uh, previously, who think the, the number one problem with money, it seems, is that the central bank doesn't have enough control.
1: That's right. I mean, uh, economists are talking about uh, getting rid of cash, for example. Uh, They made a movement in that direction in India, uh, although they introduced new paper currencies. uh, But they've done it in Venezuela and other places. And Ken Rogoff would like to see negative interest rates being used by the Fed. And, of course, negative interest rates would push people into cash, uh, since they can't get any yield on their deposits uh, at the bank. So he wants to— basically not outlaw all cash, but big, big uh, notes. And uh, that would give people fewer options, obviously. And the, he thinks that would give central banks, uh, certainly give them more power, but also more control uh, over, over the uh, money supply and so forth. And I think that's a extremely uh, dangerous position to take, uh, that people have the right to hold cash that's part of their bundle of property rights. And uh, when the government comes in and removes that right by force, Uh, that diminishes economic freedom.
2: You know, I I think uh, Rogoff's ideas, in a way, represent a a natural culmination of uh, conventional thinking about money. Uh, It it reminds me of Milton Friedman's quip uh, that uh, if you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert, eventually there would be a sand shortage. And sure enough, uh, we put governments in charge of supplying uh, our paper currency. And now they're talking about uh, not supplying it anymore. Uh, uh, of course, uh, my own research, and, and some of Jim's as well, is, has been about how it's been a big mistake to take uh, the management and provision of currency—not just paper currency, but all sorts of currency—out of the private sector and to hand it to government. and. And if we end up with no currency at all or, or, or only very limited amounts, uh, that's in a way what we should have expected to happen all along with this reliance on government.
0: You know, a couple of years ago, I went to uh, Hong Kong with my wife and uh, was sort of startled first that their denominations
2: are referred to as honkies, uh, but, but also that— that the, comes, by the way, from the Hong—not from Hong Kong, but from the Honkers and Shankers, which is the nickname for the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, one of the main private note-issuing banks in Hong
0: Kong. Well, and and on the uh, currency is printed the logo of HSBC. That's correct. And uh, I, you know, I don't know what their relationship is with uh, the government uh, precisely, but at least uh, as a conceptual matter, you you look at it and you see oh. There's there's really uh, at least no particular problem with having a specific corporate entity sponsor money. That's exactly right. Of course,
1: George has done a lot of research on that with the Scottish banking system and so forth. But I think this, this idea to outlaw cash uh, could backfire because people will want a parallel currency and they can go into digital currencies, for example, like Bitcoin or some other currency that may emerge. So – Uh, We basically favor parallel currencies and competition in currency uh, because we don't want the government to have a monopoly over such an important aspect of people's lives.
0: Okay. And and, uh, Jim, as we've spoken before, India is probably a prime example of what happens when you – uh, tell people they they can't have cash.
1: Absolutely, and uh, I'm amazed that Modi won by such a large uh, vote in this in this recent election in Uttar Pradesh, which is one of the largest uh, states within India.
0: So, so if you could both provide me your perspective on well, well, with, with respect to India specifically, this seems to be a case study in when you give uh, political actors too much control over the money supply. What you know what practically allows uh political people to engage in that kind of uh, a policy
2: we have to be very careful though the 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 problem uh the specific thing that went wrong in India was uh that um they decided to demonetize their existing currency notes before they had the new ones ready so strictly speaking uh the the plan wasn't to just get rid of cash. In that case, it was to replace replace it, uh, or at least to, to uh, modify the cash, and uh, that meant turning in all the notes, and particularly the smaller—some uh, larger denomination ones. Uh, and they botched it. They they simply botched it, and they knew they were about to botch it, because they knew the new currency wasn't ready, but they did it anyway, and uh, they discovered in this way just how heavily dependent their economy was on cash, highly cash-dependent economy. Now people like Rogoff will say, well, it's a whole different story here if the Fed uh, bans—particularly if it bans $100 notes uh, uh, or hundreds and fifties, you know, we have checks, we have other ways of making payments. One thing, not the only thing, that that argument neglects is that uh, just as India's reform, uh, botched as it was, mainly hurt the poorest people in India— society, the uh, U.S. ban uh, on—a U.S. ban on larger denomination notes would also hurt uh, large numbers of poor people. And I don't just mean poor people in the United States. That's not the important problem. Our dollars, our large bills, are used extensively abroad, and they're not just used by criminals. They're they're saved by people who live in countries with depreciating or untrustworthy currencies. Uh, They are widely used in all kinds of perfectly legitimate transactions, and I mean legitimate from the points of view of the governments in question. It would be an absolute— thrashing of many innocent poor people to uh, get rid of the high denomination bills that uh, that we supply. Uh, and that means it would do at least as much or perhaps even more damage than India's botched reform did. And this must not be overlooked. Now,
0: uh, you talked about uh, perfectly legitimate transactions and the, the poor people around the world who could be harmed. I'm uh, thinking of uh, Ecuador, where They are essentially a dollar-based monetary system.
2: That's right, and so is Panama, and uh, so are some other countries, either officially or unofficially, and they would have to, of course, completely revamp their systems and uh, perhaps turn to establishing uh, central banks, which they have resisted doing. Well, Ecuador is a different case where it introduced a parallel currency, but in any event, uh, the problem is that these countries know very well that their central banks uh, are not trustworthy or that t- central banks, in poorer countries especially, uh, tend to become engines of inflation. So we'd be forcing them down a, a route that many have been fortunate to avoid taking or have escaped, taking, uh, escaped from fairly recently. That's not going to do anybody in those countries any good at all.
1: And the the other thing, Caleb, is that Rogoff and others that want to replace uh, cash use the argument that well, this will get rid of corruption, black markets, and so forth, uh, shadow markets in India, uh, with respect to drug dealing and everything else, and under under underground payments. Well, that's nonsense because in India, especially the black markets have emerged because of government uh, restrictions on economic freedom and the need for licenses and all these other things that people want to get around. And the and the big uh, dealers in these uh, know how to get rid of cash quickly. They don't stay in the local currency. They might go into gold or dollars or some other thing to protect their situation. So, simply— issuing new currency to replace the old—and then they're issuing new currency to replace the old currency, so they're still going to have paper currency. Uh, They're uh, just—you know, they took the 500 uh, rupee note out and the 1,000 rupee note, which were very large denomination notes in that culture, and they removed about 90 percent of the uh, cash. And it uh, created a chaotic situation that still hasn't been thoroughly resolved. But I think what people are reacting to and the reason they're voting for Modi is because he's— promising to get rid of corruption and uh, in fact the government itself is the one that's uh, generating the corruption because of the uh, lack of economic freedom
0: well and uh, one man's crime is another man's economic freedom right? right depending on whether or not you're charged with enforcing the rules against uh, what is in uh, broadly understood to be a perfectly legitimate uh, transaction but the the, the the more broadly than that cash, and the availability of parallel currencies, as, as you uh, explain, serves a function that allows people to get around bad rules right? and allows them to, in, in some ways, escape a regime that otherwise might have uh, even more power over their lives.
1: Yeah, it increases the range of individual choice, which is really the measure of development uh, to a large extent. As Peter Bauer pointed out, so that when you uh, limit the opportunities to hold cash and you impose costs on people by making them move to different currencies, uh, that that has a negative impact on the society.
2: You might call it the new serfdom because in the old manorial system, of course, serfs or whatever you choose to call them, uh, they provided services in kind uh, to the lords, uh, and uh, the lords supposedly provided them with services in turn, protection, what have you. And what uh, the monetization of medieval economies did, as many people recognized, was to provide a, a means of escape from that uh, those feudal bounds and allow the serfs to— uh, uh, be become uh, uh, wage earners and to uh, be able to uh, uh, buy their services wherever they liked instead of being bound to uh, the manor. Now, well <laughs> it, it's a different kind of servitude to be able to trace every transaction that people undertake and then tell them which ones they uh, cannot uh, or arrest them if they take undertake the wrong ones uh, i think it's uh, it's in many respects retrograde so as i mentioned earlier the
0: the honkies uh, as they were called are these sort of plastic uh, pieces of uh, material that are the, the notes. They are bank notes in a very real sense uh, from HSBC. So what I guess what would I need to understand about how those notes come into existence in order to appreciate whether or not this is a sound uh, monetary regime?
2: Well, the first thing I would emphasize is that once upon a time, all the paper currency that people used came from private commercial banks some of which had special privileges, but they were nevertheless uh, uh, private banks. The Bank of England, for example, was a private bank for most of its uh, existence. Uh, In Hong Kong, uh, you had one of those cases where multiple banks competed to supply notes, which were just promises to pay that circulated, and they raised funds from people uh, that collected savings that way, in the same way that they collect savings by taking deposits. Uh, the hong kong system now uh, like all of the few surviving competitive banknote systems uh, the others are in uh, in ireland and scotland uh, uh, is heavily regulated with high essentially 100% marginal reserve requirements but back in the past uh, banks uh, issued notes based on very modest reserves and the countries that did—had the freest banking systems, which gets us back to talking about Scotland, which uh, Larry White has written a definitive book about, and Canada, but also Hong Kong in its earlier days they had the most uh, effective, stable, and efficient banking systems. And we forget just how stable and efficient they were with very few losses, very few uh, failures, and very few crises. And, of course, those systems had
1: a money that was convertible into some type of a commodity. Uh, And the book that I had uh, produced uh, with articles from the Cato Journal over the years is focusing on alternatives to government fiat money, not just government fiat money, but discretionary government fiat money. So we live in a a pure fiat money world today. There's no link to any commodity at all. It's not convertible. So it requires that the central banks limit the quantity of money, but how do they know how much money to produce? Uh, Under a commodity-based system with convertibility, the supply of money basically is determined by the demand for balances uh, for trade and so forth. And uh, money holds its value over the longer period of time. There's a equilibrium built into that system. Now we have a system that nobody knows exactly what the Fed's going to do. There's a great amount of uncertainty in the system. There's no rules behind the system, uh, no rule of law and i think that's a very poor system and we have to think about the institutional features f- for improving that system
0: so what, what were the big lessons uh... for our money uh... when it comes to the financial crisis in our various conversations uh... in the past over this we saw a dramatic increase in the feds balance sheet a lot of assumption of authorities that were uh, dubious at best uh... by the federal reserve but What would you say were the the sort of the linchpin lessons that we should be taking away for our money from the financial crisis?
2: Well, I would add, uh, uh, in answering that question, to what Jim was saying before. There, there were actually there are two features to these old really sound uh, uh, currency systems. I was referring to. And uh, they they went together very well in the past, but they should be recognized separately. On the one hand, yes, in those old days, you had uh, commodity standards, particularly in the last decades of the— uh, 19th and early decades of the 20th century, you had gold standards, but you also had in the most stable countries—and and this is important, because not all countries were stable that had, had gold standards—but those that were, like Canada, uh, had currency systems managed by uh, competing banks, supplying paper currency as substitutes for gold. And that structure of the banking system, the freedom of those banking systems to establish branches, to convert uh, deposits into currency and so on, which was a freedom that was utterly lacking in most other—in many other countries, including the U.S. We had lots of banks, but having lots of banks and having a free banking system and not the same thing, in any event. Uh, That—the combination gave Canada a crisis-free system, and people don't realize America had huge financial crises before the Fed, which is why we ended up with the Fed. We had panics. 1884 uh, eight, 1893 1907 they seemed to get worse and worse Canada nothing hardly anything happened most of those years nothing happened they never had stringencies, let alone full-blown crises they had some trouble in 1907 because the government regulations the, one of the few regulations limited Canada's banks ability to issue notes and they had to relax that and it was that took care of that and anyway, you're totally crisis free in the US the crises were severe, but let's, let's keep in mind they had a gold standard. Now, one of the lessons of this is that uh, whatever the flaws of the gold standard are, Right. We have to separate them from the flaws that are connected to particular banking systems. So if there was instability in the gold standard, if we want to know how much that was its fault, we need to look at the systems that were most stable because we don't want to blame the gold standard for the banking problems. On the other hand, uh, we can have a banking system like Canada's in theory. Without a gold standard, it will help. It won't make up for the botches of se- the, the botching up of monetary policy of central banks, but it could make for a much more efficient system. And by the way, it's worth mentioning, <laughs> though it's been a long time since the good old days of completely free banking in Canada, that Canada weathered the recent crisis extremely well compared to other countries, and that, that too, reflected— well on its banking system, which continue to have at least some of the features that it had in the old free banking days.
1: And I, I would uh, point out that uh, the Federal Reserve as we have it today is much different than when it first started in 1913. Its powers are quite a bit different, and it's involved in uh, macroprudential regulation. It's using a situation uh, with respect to the crisis to expand its power. And it used quantitative easing, which was large, uh, involved large-scale asset purchases. They were purchasing mortgage-backed securities, allocating credit, uh, and doing all these things that uh, the original central bank uh, never did. And in addition, this whole dual mandate uh, is uh, misleading because the Fed really can't uh, bring about... Uh, real economic growth. Mo- Printing more money doesn't create real economic growth. It creates distortions in prices, uh, and the Fed con- tries to control interest rates and leads to all types of uh, distortions, penalizing savers by near-zero interest rates. So its policy of quantitative easing and also near-zero interest rates have distorted the uh, economic system. And led to a situation of pseudo-wealth creation rather than real wealth creation.
0: All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave that conversation there, but if you'd like to dig down a little more into uh, these issues, you can get uh, Jim Dorn's book, Monetary Alternatives, Rethinking Government Fiat Money, with uh, essays by Jeff Lacker, Charles Plosser, George Selgin, uh, a tough get, I'm sure, uh, Leland Yeager, uh, and of course the late uh, Jim Buchanan, and uh, the other book, Money Free and Unfree, which uh, comes out this month uh, with some contributions uh, from Lawrence H. White and Bill Straps, that book, of course, by George Selgin. And if you want to learn more about a monetary policy, you can, of course, tune in to the Monetary Conference that the Cato Institute has held for decades now. And, of course, find more at our website, cato.org. Nationalism and identity politics deny or at the very least minimize the importance of the individual by reducing everyone to categories. Combined with populism, these forces can create unique risks to liberty. Jonah Goldberg, senior editor at National Review, discussed the challenges at a Cato seminar in Florida in February.
3: Globally and in America, we're in a very strange moment. We're in a moment of Populism and nationalism, the likes of which we have not seen in a very long time. Um, and I'll just be honest, I don't like populism. The conservatism that I grew up with, the, which has got a heavy dose of libertarianism in it, um, is all about the idea that ideas matter, that arguments matter, that facts matter, that feelings um, don't, if you feel that it's triggering that two plus two is four, does it doesn't mean two plus two isn't four. Um, and what populism basically says, that if enough angry people get together, they can say two plus two is whatever they want it to be. Five, 10, a duck, doesn't matter. And uh, I remember one of my favorite lines comes from William Jennings Bryan, who was one of the most famous populist leaders um, in American history. And he said, the people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. My view is, no, the arguments matter. Um, if, if socialized medicine is bad when Democrats want to put it in, socialized medicine is bad when Republicans want to put it in. And I'm not a team guy. And I think this has disappointed a lot of people who thought, you know, one of the most shocking revelations of this entire period has been how many people have been disappointed in me for not living down to their expectations um, and becoming sort of a party hack for them. The only, party, the only populist movement I have ever supported, and I supported it, I spoke at rallies and all the rest, was the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement is the first populist movement I can think of in American history where the whole idea was to fulfill that ancient biblical libertarian prophecy of libertarians taking over the government and then leaving everybody alone. Um, and I thought the Tea Party movement was an incredibly healthy thing. Because what it was was it was the exact right response to Barack Obama, which was, let's double down, reaffirm our core convictions about limited government, constitutionalism, living within our means, the importance you know, of these sort of Lockean precepts that created the founding. That's what the, the Tea Partiers embraced and championed. The problem was they were called racists anyway. Um, and, they were call- and they were demonized in the press, and they were treated like um, as if they were sort of nascent fascists. And um, I think that one of the things that this did was it sort of caused a kind of psychic break for a lot of conservatives who said, well, we're going to get called racist no matter what. The left is all about tribalism and identity politics. Maybe we should be too. And while by no means do I think everyone who voted for Donald Trump. I have people in my family who voted for Donald Trump. I have friends who voted for Donald Trump. I get it. But there is, particularly as you get into some of the more fever swampish areas of the right that National Review has always considered itself a policeman of, there is this new embrace of, of sort of white identity politics. And I think that any politics, whether it's of the right or the left, is bad. And I don't believe in the principle of, if my enemy is wrong but winning, I should be wrong too so I can compete with them. And yet, there's a lot of that going around on the right. And it takes a lot of different forms. Some of it is racist. A lot of it is just sort of nationalist. But either way, I think it's dangerous and unhealthy. And I guess I should clarify about something about conservatism. So conservatism, properly understood, is different in America and always has been. Friedrich Hayek makes this point. The Great social scientist Samuel Huntington has made this point. America is the one country in all of the world, with a possible exception of Britain today, where you can be a conservative and a defender of liberty. That is what uh, Friedrich Hayek got about, was talking about in his famous essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative. The conservatives he was talking about were the blood and soil, uh, altar and throne conservatives of, of Europe, right? monarchists, um, nationalists. He was not talking about America, where he said, America is the one place where you can call yourself a conservative, and still be on the side of liberty. Because in America, what we are trying to conserve is a radical liberal constitution and founding that enshrines certain ideas in. And so when I talk about conservatism, I'm including libertarianism. And I know when I make these points at Cato, uh, because at Cato, Cato is one of the only other places where um, people wear their favorite philosophers on their ties because we're so cool. Um, We can get into some arguments about it. But that's what I mean by all of this. Um, And that brings me to nationalism. I think a little nationalism is a healthy thing. It binds people together. It makes people attached to what they know and what they have. Um, It sort of thickens the stew of civil society. But the problem is, first of all, nationalism and patriotism are not the same thing. My old boss, uh, William F. Buckley, liked to say, I'm as patriotic as anyone from sea to shining sea but there's not a molecule of nationalism in me. And on the other hand, Adolf Hitler said, I'm a nationalist, but I'm no patriot. Uh, there's a difference between the two things. Patriotism is, especially, particularly in America, involves attaching yourself to certain creeds and ideas about the nature of the society that we live in and the kind of government that we want. Nationalism just basically says, my tribe versus your tribe and my tribe's better. And so a little tribalism is a healthy thing because it gets people to stick together. It's what makes teams work. It's what makes all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, that sense of belonging is what makes army units work. That's all fine. But every poison is determined by the dose. Too much nationalism becomes lethal to a country. And I should also point out, nationalism and socialism, in terms of public policy, are the same thing. If you nationalize medicine you're socializing healthcare. You can go through any speech by Fidel Castro or Hugo Chavez or any of those guys and just randomly swap out the words socialist for nationalist and the words nationalist for socialist, and the meaning stays the same. When you nationalize things, you socialize things. When you socialize things, you nationalize things. The days of the dream of international communism have been dead since about 1928. It's all about nationalism within states. And... Nationalism is the, is the code words of the right for talking about socialism and solidarity and team and my tribe versus everybody else. And socialism is the language the left use. But when you listen to them, you should be aware that basically they mean the same thing. They're just describing slightly different teams.
0: Predominantly Muslim societies suffer from low levels of political, economic, and civil liberty. Authoritarian political regimes, rigid social structures, and radical religious movements that suppress human liberty in the name of God loom large in the Muslim world. Is this liberty deficit due to a dark age of Islam? Can it be overcome? Author Mustafa Akiol made his case at the Cato Institute in February.
4: I talk about Islam, my religion, but I want to begin by recalling an episode from the history of another religion, and I want to actually recall an important philosopher from the 18th century, 18th century Germany. His name was Moses Mendelssohn, and he was a pious Jew who was also inspired by the Enlightenment. He was especially driven to the rationalism and individualism and liberalism of the Enlightenment, And with his writings, he wanted to synthesize Judaism with the Enlightenment. He argued against coercion in the name of religion. He argued for reinterpreting the halakha. He argued that Jews could be full members of Gentile society because Jews were living in ghettoized communities, partly because of European antisemitism, partly also because of rabbinical authority and the communalist culture. So he wanted to make Jews. German and Frenchman of mosaic faith. He thought one can be fully Jewish and fully modern and liberal. Not everybody, though, were convinced by these arguments. Uh, Some Christians at the time thought that while Christianity is a religion of the spirit, Judaism is a religion of the law. So there's an inherent tension between Judaism and liberalism. One of those critics of Mendelssohn was a man named August Friedrich Kranz, who wrote a book against him, booklet, let's say. And he said, Judaism is an armed ecclesiastical law. It can never be compatible with liberalism. And he just wondered why Moses Mendelssohn just doesn't convert to Christianity, rather than trying to just be in this effort, futile effort of trying to reform Judaism. Another Judaism skeptic at the time was a name no less greater than Immanuel Kant. He said, while Christianity appeals to the individual, Judaism is communal, and it has an idea of theocracy in its very beginning. So he said, Jews can never be you know, members of free European societies unless a euthanasia of Judaism comes to happen. These were 18th century debates. History proved them basically wrong if you ask me, because Moses Mendelssohn's ideas triggered a new era in Jewish thought called the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment. Uh, And Jews gradually actually began to embrace these liberal ideas, became full members of European society. A reformed Judaism was born in the 19th century. Even Orthodox Jews reconciled themselves with certain ideas of the Haskalah. And even if there was something that really blocked Jews fully integrating into European societies, that was anti-Semitism rather than Jews' own uh, predispositions towards, let's say, an illiberal culture. And today, when you look at the Jewish world today, you see European Western Jews as actual defenders of liberalism most of the time. And a pre haskalah you know, ultra-Orthodox minority in Israel sometimes can come out with, you know, illiberal stances on gays and women and so on and so forth, but they don't define. They're becoming a more marginal force within the Jewish world. Now, why I'm speaking about Judaism? I think the reason is obvious, because the 18th century discussions about Judaism are sometimes being repeated today in the 21st century about Islam. There are Moses Mendelssohn kind of Muslims who are saying that Islam can be compatible with liberal democracy. We have to do some reinterpretation for sure but it can be and actually liberal values are inherent within Islam if you understand them properly whereas some people are saying wait a minute you know Islam is by nature a political ideology rather than a religion it is a religion of the law so muslims are bound to be loyal to the sharia and they will want to implement sharia wherever they are from indonesia to oklahoma you know wherever they, they want and So therefore, I think maybe the Judaism skeptics of the time were a little bit essentialist in looking at a religion and thinking that there are certain texts and it will never change. I think I see a kind of essentialist approach to Islam as well. And the big emphasis, of course, comes from the fact that the West is defined mostly by Christian heritage, and Christianity is indeed a religion without a religious law, whereas Islam and Judaism both have tradition of religious law, halakha and sharia. So... The argument is that always the other religion is exceptional, whereas Christianity is taken as the norm. But you can actually see that religions have different traditions. And actually, Islam and Judaism has a lot in common in that uh, perspective. So we have Moses Mendelssohn of the world, Muslim world of today. So what are these people are arguing? Just let me give you a brief overview. Uh, Well, I gave the long answer in my book, Islam Without Extremes, so all the arguments are there. But to summarize... Basically, this actually began in the Muslim world in the 19th century with Ottoman liberals like Naime Kemal or Arab reformists like Muhammad Abduh. These were Muslim thinkers who admired a lot of the liberal values in the West, and then look at the Islamic world. They found many problems, and they thought that if you go back to the basics and reinterpret certain things, you can actually have a liberal interpretation of Islam. One emphasis in this trend is always go back to the Quran and be more critical of the jurisprudential schools of the Middle Ages, and even some of the hadiths, the words attributed to Prophet Muhammad, because a lot of the tensions between actually uh, liberal values and Islamic jurisprudence, like banning apostasy, blasphemy, certain things on women, come from the hadith more than the Quran. So there's always a Quran focused reformist perspective. That's one thing. The other one is to historicize Islamic resources, Islamic sources, to say that the Quran was revealed by God in the seventh century, but within the context of that century. So certain injunctions reflect that context, and today we can re understand the Quran and the other Islamic sources within the 20th century, within the modern context. So that's another approach, which I think is very sound. There's always a Desire to reform some of the lost schools, the rationalist uh, Mutazila, for example. Uh, These were the Muslim thinkers who read Aristotle and reconciled it with Islam, Islamic theology, because they thought that scripture is from God, but reason is from God as well. So they should work together to find the truth, which is a different way of seeing the truth only coming from scripture, only from revelation. So that has been emphasized. My favorite liberal Islamic school of thought, actually, is though the Murgia, an Arabic term which means the postponers. These were early Islamic thinkers who emerged at a time when different Islamic schools were f- killing each other, fighting, calling each other as blasphemers. They said only God has the right to decide who's a blasphemer and who's an apostate and who's a true believer. So this issue should be postponed to afterlife to be resolved by God. That's why they were called the murjia, the postponers. They made the argument that John Locke also did in his letter concerning toleration. So there are these kind of resources in, in Islamic tradition that can be today brought into light and used to build a liberal argument, and those arguments are there, and there are Muslims who find them persuasive. So in every Muslim society, you have these liberal Muslim movements for reform, for change, for some progress. Uh, women's issues are always a big issue, so we have a trend called Islamic feminism. I can proudly say that my wife is one of the proponents of that, <laughs> uh, and I certainly supported her on that, just make no, make no mistake. And... And Islamic feminism argues that you know in the beginning Islam was a uh, religion that liberated women however male domination ideology interpreted the Quran and misinterpreted for centuries now we have to we can go forward so hey here you have a trend when it comes to economic freedom actually it's easy to make the liberal argument there i mean from the beginning Islam has been a market friendly religion i mean prophet muhammad was a merchant among the worlds big founders of religion, he's the only businessman. And he left a legacy of you know market and trade. Interest has always been an issue, but Muslims have found ways to either not call it interest but do it in another way, or maybe to say that there's a difference between usury and modern banking interest. So that's why you know you can have capitalism uh, that is valued and accepted by Islam. Here's one thing though, some people will say well, these yes, we know there are Muslim liberals since the 19th century, late 19th century, but they are not very popular. You know, they're always marginal. Uh, the other guys are always winning. Like, why is that the case? Is there something essential about the religion which makes this liberalism, you know, a futile effort? People sometimes ask me, like, you've been writing about this for 10 years. You know, my whole Muslim world is not like Norway still. Well, one thing is that civilizations take time to change. Uh, I mean, it takes a lot of time for Christianity to change as well. We should remember that. But the other thing is that, and I think that's particularly valid for the past two centuries of Islam, ideas flourish not in vacuum, but they flourish in a certain context. And liberalism generally flourishes when a society feels secure, when a society feels Dignified. When a society feels wealthy, that's why you know sociologists generally connect liberalism to the rise of the bourgeois, the middle class. You know, and and it's not an accident that it grew in more safe societies. It is also not an accident that when traditional liberal Western societies are challenged, they feel threatened. They can move away from liberalism a little bit. I think we are seeing that trend in Europe and U.S. lately. The Islamic world in the past two centuries. So witness this effort to bring in liberalism, but also it has been the most insecure civilization on earth in the past two centuries. The the past two centuries have been the most traumatic era for Muslim societies.
0: If you own a cell phone, you're carrying a miniature tracking device in your pocket, a fact that law enforcement agencies are increasingly taking advantage of to investigate crimes and monitor suspected criminals. Cell site simulators, or stingrays, designed for the military but used by domestic police, make it possible. At a Cato Conference on Domestic Surveillance in February, Republican Representative Jason Chaffetz, Chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, discussed the dangers posed by stingrays.
5: This discussion today is very specific. Uh, to so-called stingrays. Now I want to be careful, that's a brand name of a particular provider. There are other pieces of technology out there that do similar things. It's like calling it Kleenex when tissue would more better cover the whole gambit here, but they have been uh, known as, as stingrays, but essentially cell phone um, uh, simulators. You have a mobile phone, it's constantly searching, searching for a signal. Somebody comes up with a simulated cell phone tower, a more portable device uh, that will tap into that. And then not only can they tell your specific location, uh, but these machines actually have the ability to read content of those machines as well. And that's something that they like you to know about. But the reality is they can actually also look at content. And despite assurances that that would never be the case, These machines are still built to be able to gather that information. What the public doesn't, I think, thoroughly understand is that our federal government has spent uh, close to $100 million buying these machines. $100 million. So just at the Department of Justice alone, and it took us a long time to unearth this, they have 310 of these devices uh, spending more than $71 million. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security has 124 of these devices, spending more than $24 million. And uh, as the result of our committee's investigation, uh, the public now knows not only do traditional law enforcement entities such as the FBI and the U.S. Marshals have these devices, but remarkably, the IRS has been purchasing these machines. In fact, they purchased one, uh, I believe is on the East Coast. They tried to tell us that they really don't use it and don't use it very often, and of course, of course that's the case. They bought a second machine um, so they could have one on the West Coast. Uh, they spent more than a million dollars, basically half a million dollars each, for machines that they tell us they really don't use. Now, what in the world is the IRS doing with cell phone simulator uh, technology? Uh, Again, I I don't believe Mr. Koskinen is the commissioner of the IRS. I think he has lied to the American people and the Congress. I absolutely don't trust him. And I don't trust the IRS snooping on our phones and using these machines. I don't know where. I can't see it. But they have them, and I think the uh, public—I think they they should sell them or give them back or dispose of them. And they should do that under the watchful eye of, of some third party because I absolutely fundamentally do not trust them and I see no reason for them to have this technology. Uh, when a cell, phone, uh, a cell site similar to device is activated, the cell phones in the surrounding area connect to the device in a similar way that your cell phone towers do. Essentially, it allows the law enforcement to see your very precise location. It was described to me that if you were to go to uh, New York City and you had this device, not only could it tell you which building you're in, it could tell you which floor you're in, and it could tell you which room you're in. You can see in a law enforcement situation that can be a very positive thing, right? There are good aspects to this. If you have a missing child, if you have uh, maybe an elderly citizen who has wandered off and and, and is forgetful, you can see where there are positive ways to use this. You can also see that in a law enforcement investigation, if they are targeting a particular criminal, Uh, they could get in there and understand uh, and track and find this person. Uh, I think there are very legitimate reasons to do that, and there are some departments and agencies that I'm sure are supposed to be able to have these. These machines were originally designed for the United States military, and we did not dive into the military aspects uh, of this at all. Now, when the committee first began its investigation in April of 2015, the federal law enforcement entities could obtain a court's authorization to use these uh, simulators by meeting a standard that was lower than probable cause. In September of 2015, five months into the committee's investigation, and with a hearing in the subcommittee on information technology, literally right before our hearing, the Department of Justice announced a new policy for its cell phone uh, simulator devices. I don't think they wanted to go to the committee without being able to articulate what it is those procedures would be. Shortly thereafter, and just two days before the hearing, uh, Homeland Security also followed suit with an announcement of a similar new policy. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, the IRS said, oh, okay, well, that's our policy too. Um, the new policy substantially changed how the agencies obtained authorization, and the policies now require agencies to obtain a search warrant supported by probable cause with some very limited exceptions. In short, the bipartisan oversight and public exposure really pushed the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and the IRS to fundamentally alter their policies and the way they were doing that. It wouldn't have happened unless there was some, some oversight. But as the report makes clear, when the committee initiated its investigation of spring of 2015, the use of these devices at the federal, state, and local level, it was really not very well known, and the inconsistency was certainly the case. Let's also understand that it's not just the federals, uh, the feds that have these. You have Sunrise Florida that has a device. And I'm sure the good people of Sunrise are very safe and secure, but they don't necessarily have to institute any standards in using these devices. Now, I think it's a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. I think it is an invasion of our privacy. I have asked, I believe, two FBI directors and two, um, two attorneys general, I should say, You know, there's a discussion out there about metadata and content. And they'll swear to you, they'll testify, and they will say, look, we only look at the metadata. You know, when I send an email between me and this gentleman over here, we're just looking at the metadata. We don't look at the content. So the question, one of the questions we all as a society have to ask, is your geolocation metadata or is it content? I would argue that it's content. If I can watch you, where you are, where you go, what you do, who you visit, that's the content of your life. And so because I carry this mobile phone device, should everybody in the world be able to see if I'm going somewhere? What if somebody's uh, maybe getting cancer treatments or wants to go to a particular bar or wants to just you know pick up their kids at a school every day? Is that anybody else's business? No. It's not, and it's certainly not the law enforcement's business unless they have probable cause to chase us down. So, the FBI, which has 194 devices, took uh, took very uh, evasive steps to obscure not only these devices uh, from the court and the public, but it's also its role in assisting state and local law enforcement agencies. In fact, they went so far when they helped the locals to make them sign non disclosure agreements. Uh, to prohibit the public from learning about the use or role of these, uh, this technology. They even went so far in cases where there were pending criminal charges, and rather than prosecuting that person, they decided they didn't want to reveal how they knew this information, and they just dropped the case, and the bad guys, at least in their opinions, uh, walked. And um, they went to great, great lengths to keep these secret, which should tell you something about these.
0: In the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump said that he would stop Barack Obama's clean power plan, cancel the 2015 Paris Accord on greenhouse gases, and end what he called the war on coal. Now, the president says, is the time for action. What will he do regarding energy? What should he be doing? At the Cato Institute in February, Robert Bradley, founder of the Institute for Energy Research, discussed what a classical liberal energy policy might look like.
6: I think the first uh, point uh, is that uh, free market energy policy is based on private property rights, voluntary exchange, and certainly uh, the rule of law. Uh, There's a whole uh, academic tradition of free market environmentalism that I won't get into uh, here today, Uh, but I think these are the three essentials, uh, private property, voluntary exchange, and uh, the legal framework. Um, another tenet of uh, a classical liberal free market energy policy is that uh, government regulation and tax policy is uh, neutral or as neutral as it can be, uh, avoiding special government favor, uh, picking winners or losers, and uh, there's a term all of the above when it comes to energy policy Uh, That, to me, is code for government subsidies of some energies to allow them to compete against the energies that consumers uh, naturally choose. Very, very much um, a barrier against cronyism or rent-seeking by private interests. Free market energy policy is principled. Uh, the uh, uh, classical liberals don't, do not condone pro industry regulation. One would be eminent uh, domain for common carrier, common purchaser pipelines on the state level or uh, on the federal level. Uh, uh, international oil, uh, in, uh, interstate uh, oil pipelines uh, receive eminent uh, domain. Uh, rights, uh, if they are common carriers under current federal law, but on the state level certainly eminent domain is uh, important. Generally, I think you can say that free market energy policy is pro-consumer and uh, pro-taxpayer and uh, uh, pro-entrepreneur in the sense of uh, private entrepreneurship versus political entrepreneurship. There's an intellectual tradition uh, behind classical liberal Uh, energy policy. Uh, Certainly uh, the idea of of undesigned order, spontaneous order, the results of human action but not of human design, Uh, what we've learned from F.A. Hayek and uh, a number of other scholars applies to uh, the U.S. oil and gas electricity experience. Uh, There's lots of case studies there. There's also a very rich uh, historical tradition of government intervention in energy markets, Uh, And uh, government intervention as a rule is cumulative. Uh, It's always going from one phase to the other. It is unstable, uh, and it is even chaotic, whether it's uh, price and allocation controls of energy resources during World War I, World War II, uh, the Korean conflict or the 1960s and 70s. The results have been uh, predictable. The same with... Uh, protectionist programs for oil, uh, in particular, in the United States from the 1930s forward. And I mention that because of the uh, border adjustment tax that's uh, now under consideration. I think a third point is uh, the intellectual tradition of public choice economics, recognizing that there's government failure, not only market failure, and that any Public policy in the real world that proposes to intervene in markets, not only do you need to uh, estimate, understand the alleged market failure, you have to factor in that uh, political solutions are expensive. There's unintended consequences. They go out, go off in completely new directions, and this is a very powerful argument uh, for not intervening in the first place. Uh, not having the qualitative decision to intervene, even if it starts off very small and uh, uh, grows later on. Uh, And I think there's a lot of uh, uh, history, Uh, there's theory and history that supports a a pretty much a laissez-faire energy policy.
0: Cato University is the Cato Institute's premier educational event of the year. This year, we've expanded Cato University into several three day sessions, each with a different focus that offers comprehensive analyses of critical, multifaceted issues at the center of individual liberty. The first session will be Cato University's College of Economics, held in July in Newport Beach, California, with discussions by top economics professors from Harvard University, Northwestern University, and the Cato Institute to solidify your expertise on core economic issues and then help you apply those tools to today's most pressing issues. Registration and additional information for each program is available at cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.